It's time for this week's edition of the Virtual Bible Study. The Virtual Bible Study is a live, internet-only call-in program dedicated to the honest study and discussion of God's Word. Do you have a question about something in the Bible? Or are you simply interested in learning more about the Scriptures? If so, we hope you'll stay tuned tonight as we look into the pages of God's Word. The Virtual Bible Study is brought to you this time each week by the College View Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. You can participate in the discussion tonight by calling 93 93- 3-1-381-4567 or by emailing your questions or comments from collegeview.com. We hope you'll take out your Bibles and study along with us as we begin an exciting study of God's Word on this edition of the Virtual Bible Study. And we welcome you to the Virtual Bible Study tonight. We're glad you're a part of it. We hope you'll stay tuned to the Virtual Bible Study tonight. We're looking forward to your participation. In just a few minutes, I'll be joined by my father, Greg Wynn, my co-host, and another uh, assortment of guests. Uh, they are concluding the gospel meeting that we're having at the College View Church of Christ this week, and they will be joining us shortly, so we hope you'll stay tuned. And we will have an open forum on the program tonight. Any Bible question or comment will be fair game. We have many questions that we want to address tonight, but we'd like to include yours as well. You can join in on the discussion with your questions or comments two ways. First, you can dial 877-381-4567, or you can send an email to questions at collegeview.com. We'll be discussing your Bible questions or comments on the program tonight live. We'll also be joined by a live audience as they are wrapping up the assembly of our gospel meeting right now in the auditorium here at the College View Church of Christ Assembly House. And we'll be joined by that audience shortly with their questions or comments, but we'd like to include yours as well. Again, the number to call is toll-free tonight, 877-381-4567, or you can email us, questions at collegeview.com. We'll also remind you that if you are in the Columbia, Tennessee area, we would encourage you to come tomorrow night at 7 o'clock as we'll conclude our gospel meeting Alan Dvorak from the Huntsville, Alabama area will be with us to bring us a message from God's Word, and we would encourage you to come and be a part of that assembly. If you're in the Columbia, Tennessee area tomorrow night at 7 o'clock, find out more about how to get to our assembly at our website, collegeview.com. And uh, the crowd is coming in now, and uh, we'll uh, get them Ready to go here. My father, Greg Wynn, is here. Hello, Dan. Jacob, good to see you tonight. Good to be with you in the virtual Bible study. We just just wrapped up our gospel meeting service for this evening, and I've got Rick Duggan with me, and we're going we're gonna to play uh, Stump the Preacher here for a little while tonight and see if we can put some questions to Rick and to all of us uh, that might challenge us to look carefully at the Scriptures and get an answer. We put out a, a request earlier today to all those on our update list to... Uh, Send us questions that they would like to hear discussed. It's an open forum type of a thing. And so uh, any question goes. We're not going to follow any particular theme tonight. Uh, if you have a question, send us an email to questions at collegeview.com. Or you can get on the phone and call us, 877-381-4567. We'd be glad to hear from you. Um, Jacob, I thought a Let's good go question. Let's and welcome our guest tonight. That's right. We have Rick Duggan here from Murfreesboro. Hello, Rick. Thank you for coming tonight. Thank you. And um, we also have uh, some of your entourage with us. Doug Ferry is here. Hello, Doug. All right, I think I've got you on there. Um, so good to have you here. And uh, Rick, appreciate your, your message tonight. Very good. Thank uh, you. On the, uh, on the inspiration of the Bible and very convincing. The evidence, evidence the yeah, evidence exactly. of the authentic, authenticity of the Scriptures. Rick did a great job. 
and really provided us with some powerful evidence to support the legitimacy of the Scriptures. We appreciate his work very much. We've got a lot of questions that have come in, Jacob, and I thought maybe a really excellent one to start with is from our friend Jim in Mount Pleasant, Tennessee, who wrote in a question and said, from where do we get the authority for gospel meetings? That's a pretty good question. We're having a gospel meeting here this week at College View, and and the question is asked, What's the authority for doing something like this? Or, or do we have authority? Are we acting without authority? What, what would you say about that? What about it, Rick? You just uh, were participant in that activity. You believe it's uh, authorized from the Scriptures? Some people are confused by the subject of general authority. You won't find a specific passage that gives specific statements about some things that nevertheless are authorized by general authority. That includes, for example, Noah is told to build an ark, and it doesn't say a word about tools. We know that tools are authorized because there's no other way for him to get the wood in order to build the ark unless he karate chopped them. Then someone would say, well, where does it say karate chop? You can always ask about any of the specifics. General authority includes when Jesus told the disciples to go, he didn't specify whether by boat or by walking or donkey or by plane they had no planes then but you might as well ask is it okay to go by a plane well if you're still just going yes and when he told them to go and preach the gospel uh and to do it in all the world uh that's general authority when a person does that with people who have never heard it before or as paul would do in rome when he said i'm eager to preach the gospel to you who are in rome romans 1 1 through 7 1 through 16 That shows he had the authority to meet together with them. Then in Acts 20, verse 20, he did not hesitate uh, daily to meet with disciples to teach them regularly what they needed to hear. That's a a meeting together in order to spread the gospel. 1 Corinthians 14, so many passages that would give general authority for that practice. In the matter of general authority, we understand that lawful expedients are allowed. In other words, and as you've said, Rick, we've been given the instruction to go and teach. Uh, you, we, we might ask the question, where's the authority for an Internet program like the virtual Bible study? Well, it's also authorized generally by the command to go and teach. And so since we have general authority to do this work, then any lawful means to accomplishment, accomplishment, accomplish it rather, is included in the command to do it. So uh, I, I think Jim was probably just asking a question to stimulate this kind of discussion, but it's an important one. And, I, uh, and the whole subject of Bible authority and how we arrive at proper conclusions about what God wants us to do is a very important thing. All right. Good question, Jim. Thank you for your participation tonight. You can join in on the discussion by dialing 877-381-4567 or by emailing questions at collegeview. We're looking forward to hearing from you on the program tonight. Jason from Greensburg, Pennsylvania, has sent in his question via email tonight. His question is, are the seven men chosen in Acts chapter 6 to serve the widows deacons? Are the men who are chosen in Acts chapter 6 deacons? What would you say about that important question? You know, I've I've heard... Uh, all, uh, many times, I mean, for as long as I can remember, I've heard people refer to those men in Acts chapter 6 as deacons. Uh, let me just remind you of that episode in Acts chapter 6, beginning verse 1. It says, In those days when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. 
And then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among ye seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves uh, continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. And it goes on to name the ones that they chose. Now, it's very obvious in reading that text that the word deacon is not applied specifically to these men. It's not in that context. But the word deacon simply means servant. And the deacons, uh, those who held the office of deacon, later in 1 Timothy chapter 3, uh, Paul would refer to those who would be deacons. Uh, beginning verse 8, he states their qualifications. Um, and he actually refers to that position as the office of deacon in verse 13. And so there was an, as, as the church was organized, there were those who were specially appointed deacons or specially appointed servant, servants of the church. They held an office of deacon. That is, they were appointed to be servants of the church. And so in answer to Jason's question, I think we have to honestly and accurately say they're not called deacons, but it appears that the work that they were given to do was similar to the kind of work that deacons would be assigned in, in the church in the first century and thereafter as they became specially appointed to serve uh, local congregations. Rick, do you have any comments along those lines? I know in Acts 6, verse 1, in the daily distribution, in verse 2, uh, serve tables, and in verse 6, uh, verse 4, rather, the ministry of the word, it's all the same root of the same term, that you'll see also in Romans 13, uh, 4, he's God's minister, uh, speaking there of the government official who doesn't bear the sword in vain. It's a general term that's used of various people who serve in whatever capacity. The only thing I'd be comfortable saying is just like Greg has said, is that in this context, he's simply referring to men who are servants. Uh, Phoebe would be a servant too, but I don't think she's a deaconess. And if so, I wouldn't know what qualifications she would have to um, be able to serve in that capacity. It's a general term. And I wouldn't think she's a deaconess or that these are deacons in the sense of 1 Timothy 3 any more than the man who's the government official in Romans 13 verse 4 would be because the same word is used. All right. Thank you, Jason, for that question on the program tonight. We have a question from Preston in Valdosta, Georgia. He says, how are we to socialize with the world? How are we to socialize with the world? Should we have friends of the world? Obviously, we have to teach them, but if they don't take to it, what then? Obviously, we shouldn't let any of the worldly things they do influence us. Doug, I'll ask you for your input on that question. What's our relationship to those in the world? Is it acceptable to have friends who are in the world and, and not in a right relationship with God? We, um, it tells us that we are to be, that we're going to be part of the world, but we are to not be part of the world that we're going to be influenced by them to be leading us away. Uh, do not be deceived. Evil communication uh, corrupts good morals. And so for the influence is the danger that we have to be very, very aware of what um, someone would lead us down the wrong path or lead us away from God. And so that's what we need to, to consider when we're choosing our friends. All right. Absolutely. Uh, it's important that we have the right relationship with those in the world. As uh, Doug has mentioned, uh, they can lead us astray if we're not careful. That's right. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15.33 says evil, com evil companions corrupt good morals. That's the way one English translation has that text. And, and so if we choose the wrong kinds of people, 
they can certainly lead us astray. However, having said that, I think we also understand that the Lord would have us to be in contact with the people of the world so that we can influence them. In other words, he does not expect us to become withdrawn like hermits and live in a closed sort of cult sort of enclave where we're completely separated from the people of the world and thus can't influence them. We remember Jesus' famous statement in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 when he said, ye are the salt of the earth. And then he also said in verse 14, ye are the light of the world. We cannot be salt and light if we're not in contact with those of the world. And so, again, we don't want to let the world influence us toward evil. So in that sense, we have to be very careful about choosing friends or close associates who would influence the evil. But on the other hand, we do want to have our contact with the world so that we can influence them for good. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, I believe, gives us important information along these lines. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning verse 9, Paul says, I wrote to you in an epistle not to company with fornicators, yet not altogether the fornicators of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or with idolaters. For then you must needs go out of the world. But now I've written to you not to keep company if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or extortioner with such a one no not to eat. And so, Rick, we're going to have to keep contact with those who are in the world who are living a life uh, that is not pleasing to God. Uh, We have to be careful about that association, but we're going to have to be in contact with those people. And that contact is good. It allows us to to have an opportunity to teach them uh, the correct way. Yeah, motive is the key to a lot of this. After Levi, who's also called Matthew, was uh, a disciple of the Lord, he left all and followed him. Luke 5, verse 29 shows Levi giving him a great feast in his own house. And he invited a number of tax collectors, which is kind of like today, inviting a bunch of um, atheists or terrorists to your house. They view them about the same light. And the Pharisees and scribes in Luke 5.30 murmured against the disciples because they were eating and drinking with the tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus' response is, those who are well don't need the physician, but those who are sick. And he says, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And understand, those who claim to be well and those who claim to be righteous in this context aren't. They just think they are, and they're holy, and the others are unrighteous. Then this occurs again in Luke 15. All the tax collectors and sinners drew near to him to hear him. But the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And that's when Jesus speaks these famous parables about the lost sheep and the lost coin and the lost son. How can you let someone that you care about go without trying to save him? He's a sinner, but you want to contact him to help him. On the contrary, there's in Matthew 16:6, he says, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And that in verse 12 is explained as being the doctrine of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So that's why Hebrews 5, 12 through 14 says we have to have discernment to discern between good and evil. If this person is someone who's sincerely seeking for the truth, obviously we want to try to help that person and to seek such people to study with them. But if he's someone who's trying to destroy our soul, that's the person we need to avoid. Exactly. All right, Preston, we appreciate your question on the program tonight. It's time to take a break. Excuse me. But when we get back, we want to take your question or comment. The number to call is toll-free, 877-381-4567. The email address to use is questions at collegeview.com. Don't go anywhere. The virtual Bible study continues right after this. Don't touch that mouse. The virtual Bible study will be back right after this. 
tonight on Channel 8 WSIN. It's TV like you've never seen it before. Starting at 8, it's TV's funniest new comedy, Fornication in the City, and Marie has been misbehaving again. Guess what? I just cheated on my husband. He doesn't even know about it. (laughs) And then at 8.30, it's the show that's setting the standard. You won't want to miss this week's I Love This World, where Bob makes a great announcement. Well, I think it's time you knew the truth. I'm gay. (laughs) And at 9 o'clock. It's the show that Television Magazine has called the number one drama for murder and violence. You won't want to miss this week's In Cold Blood to see who will be the next to be gunned down. It all starts tonight at 8 o'clock on Channel 8 WSIN. I'm Greg Gwynn reminding you that sin is a terrible thing and that those who are entertained by watching others sin fall under the condemnation of God that is mentioned in Romans 128. Be careful what you watch on television because in spite of what the devil wants you to think, sin is always sin and it's never funny. Hello, my name's Jeffrey Vernon. I'm 13 and this is the Virtual Bible Study. And whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. Colossians 3:17. Now, back to the program. And welcome back to the virtual Bible study tonight. We're glad you're a part of it. And we're looking forward to your participation. Again, the number to call is 877-381-4567. The email address to use is questions at collegeview.com. We have an open forum tonight. Any Bible question you might have is fair game. So jump in on the program now. Jacob, we've got a question that was sent in by Don in Antioch, Tennessee. He says, many times on your program you have mentioned the many hours people spend watching TV and the negative influence it has on us. One of the sayings around our household is, how would our society be if not for TV? When you think about it, many cliches, mannerisms, fashions, right down to the way we talk, laugh, and walk comes from TV. Have you thought about doing a program that compares how people are today to those who lived before there was a TV and how this has had a negative impact on those who profess to be Christians? Well, uh, we have mentioned in the past uh, the evil influences of the modern media in our world today, but it's something that we need to talk a lot about, and I appreciate Don bringing that to our attention. TV specifically is a very evil influence in our world, and uh, you just you simply don't have to be a great a historian to observe how TV has progressed in a very negative way. Uh, the the, uh, the immorality that is conveyed on TV increases constantly. Uh, the standards keep falling. It, there's just you're not shocked at all to know and see and hear about things that are being regularly broadcast on TV, and it is a horrible influence. Uh, on society and also, unfortunately, on Christians as well. Uh, Doug, do you have any thoughts along uh, the lines of uh, Don's question about television uh, and its influence that you see in the world today? Uh, There's no doubt that um, TV has influenced the world and that um, the world is very much a follower of TV and the fashions um, and just the, the fads that you see in our society and just working in the workplace, you can see people that talk about these shows and how they make decisions based on shows they've seen on TV. And so, yes, it is a very evil influence that as Christians we should avoid and be very cautious against it. Rick, when you're talking to people about the influence of television, what kind of uh, instruction do you give? I like to use 
Psalm 101.3, something I'm sure you, uh, brethren, have used as well. I will set nothing wicked before my eyes. And obviously David's not talking about TV specifically there. He had no TV, but um, he was better off because of it. When Ted Turner goes to Congress and testifies about the effects of violence on our children because of what they've seen on TV, that says something because he makes his living uh, pushing television shows. And when you see all kinds of uh, commercials, as you used to see, about Ethiopian children who are starving, and you go to bed and you have those images in your head and you can't get them out, it's, it's impossible to believe the claim that what you see doesn't affect you. It definitely does affect you. It does affect you because advertisers are paying millions of dollars a day because they know that what they put in front of you can cause you to think in certain ways. Mm -hmm. And they're not wasting their money because it's effective. And uh, the devil is not wasting his time either. It's effective when he puts these things in front of us. You know, you see even little children mimicking the things that they've seen on TV, especially if, if there's a particularly effective ad on TV. Even the littlest children pick up on that and repeat the phrases and so forth. It's a powerful medium, and and Satan has used it as one of his most effective tools in presenting sin and temptation in the world. Uh, and as Christians, I think we're foolish if we do not wake up to the danger and realize that this has a great impact on us, not not just on our culture. It certainly it certainly infects our culture, and uh, I mean I think that the morals of of the American society are just in deplorable shape, getting worse constantly. And I, I lay a lot of the blame uh, at at television's feet because I think that has been the, the the main thing. But what I'm especially concerned about is that as Christians, we've allowed it to corrupt us as well and to change you know don's questions ask how would we be different if it were not for tv well you just think about the fact if you didn't have tv and if you were not watching i think a lot of the surveys that are done have indicated that the average american household watches on the order seven hours of tv every day the only thing that that americans do more of than watch tv is sleep i mean you, you think of something that consumes that much of every person's uh, day it's going to have a powerful impact, and it's also going to mean, therefore, that there's not time to do other things that are more important, more needful. Bible study is neglected. Prayer is abandoned. Uh, even simple visiting is, has, has become, you know, rare. I mean, most people sit in their homes with their windows closed and their air conditioner on and watch TV, and they don't even know who their neighbors are. Uh, it, it has definitely changed us. Exactly right. We have a question or comment in the audience. Uh, go ahead. I think you've got it there. So would you agree with the statement that the uh, the politicians probably are not running this country as much as those that are in control of the media? I think that's a really good observation. You know, it's kind of scary when you when you get to see the stats about the people, the principles behind TV, and the majority of them are atheists uh, and humanists. And and they're pushing that agenda. There's just absolutely no doubt that they're pushing that agenda, and they're successfully getting it done. I think that's right. All right. Thank you, Don, for your question tonight. 877-381-4567. Email questions at collegeview.com. Any question or comment is fair game tonight. We have an email from Garland in Knoxville, Tennessee. He says he was listening to the July 15th virtual Bible study. And he had a comment on your response to a question about the distinction between widows indeed versus widows on the list. 
He says, the way I read 1 Timothy chapter 5, all widows in the, on the list or should, or, or, or should be, all widows on the list are or should be widows indeed, but not all widows indeed should be on the list. It seems to me that Paul is describing in verses 5 through 7 the way that widows should behave if they are to be honored as widows indeed. He then appears to give additional requirements in verses 9 and 10 that must be met in order for a widow indeed to be put on the list. A widow that is 59 years old could be a widow indeed, but not qualified to be on the list because of the restriction Paul states in verse 9. I'm not sure that there is any significant practical implication of which way this passage is read, but I do see the same distinction that the question implied. How does my, does my understanding make any sense? What about uh, Garland's question, Rick, about the, the widows indeed versus the widows on the list? Well, thanks for asking me that. <laughs> In verse 3, honor widows who are widows indeed are really widows. And then he explains, if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them learn first to show piety at home to repay their parents. And then he talks about one in verse 5 who is really a widow, a widow indeed, left alone, trusts in God, and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. I'll agree the word honor there is very similar to its use in verse uh, 17. The elders who rule well are to be counted worthy of double honor especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. And then he explains, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Now, what's the connection between honoring and not treading and treading out grain and not putting a muzzle on the ox? That's talking about support of some sort. So here's an elder who receives support. And I believe that's the same general principle uh, for the widow indeed in that passage. But in verse 6, she who lives in pleasure, that's another kind of widow, is dead while she lives. And then in verse 8, if any does not provide for his own, especially for his own household, he's worse than an unbeliever. Then in verse 9 and verse 10, I don't see this necessarily as being the same as the expression widow indeed, because he's talking here about a widow. If she's under 60, is not to be taken to the number, and she's not to be enrolled, literally. Uh, and she has to be the wife of one man, well reported of for good works. She's brought up children, lodged strangers, washed the saints' feet, relieved the afflicted, diligent followed every good work. Then he contrasts that with younger widows who could have been enrolled, except they don't meet these qualifications. And also, they would begin to want to get married. They could cause uh, problems wandering about from house to house and becoming uh, tattlers. And in verse 12, having condemnation because they've cast off their first faith or their first pledge, that they were pledging to live in this way, remain celibate, and probably serve in some way. And that's what I take that expression to be referring to. Then in verse 14, he says the younger widows should marry, bear children, manage the house, give no opportunity to the adversary to speak reproachfully. Then in verse 16, if any... Woman has widows, let her relieve them, and let not the church be charged that it may relieve those who are really widows. Now, a woman who is not a widow indeed could be relieved, but not in quite the same way as those who would be under the permanent care of the church. I distinguish between those and the one that is to be enrolled in verses 9 and 10 is to be probably engaged in some kind of service. I think any, I agree with you, Rick, that any widow who was destitute could receive relief from the church this added to the list, uh, verse 9, let not a woman be taken into the number, the King James says. That number simply uh, uh, was a 
a number of widows who were taken into the permanent charge and the permanent responsibility of the church and the qualifications for such a widow are listed there. Now, that's not to say that if a widow didn't meet all those exact same qualifications, she might not also. I mean, any needy Christian could receive benevolent assistance from the church. Uh, this this list or this taken into the number was an expression to denote that some it became the permanent charge or responsibility of the of the congregation to care for them because they had no one no one else to care for them. Uh, but uh, certainly, widows indeed would receive honor uh, and, and deservedly so. Those on the list were those who were taken into the permanent responsibility of the church. Uh, I'm not sure if we've specifically addressed Garland's question or not. He sees some distinction between them. Basically, I think if I take Garland's question right, there are widows indeed. Some would be on the list and some would not. In other words, they're not necessarily simultaneous expressions. And, and um, uh, I suppose that may be an accurate way to break that down. Well, I'm, we're halfway through the program. I'm looking at my list of questions, and I don't think we're halfway through our questions, so we'll have to go faster after this. But we're looking forward to adding your questions to the list. So give us a call at 877-381-4567 or email your questions or comments to questions at collegeview.com. Did you hear what they just said? Call in during this break and let everyone know what you think. The virtual Bible study continues after this announcement. Hi, I'm Wade Shelton. In 1 Peter 3.15, the scripture says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. You see, we believe here at College View that we should be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks it. And I believe that we are dedicated to this cause. That's why we here at College View bring you the virtual Bible study each week. Our hope is that you will join us each week here on the virtual Bible study in hopes of strengthening your faith so that you will be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you. Please join us here every Thursday night on the virtual Bible study. I know that it's worth an hour of your time. I'm Arthur Haynes from Kaleoka, Tennessee, and one of my greatest highlights of the week is to listen to the virtual Bible study. Missed a recent virtual Bible study program? Listen to any of our past programs from the archive section of our website. Now, back to the virtual Bible study. And welcome back to the virtual Bible study tonight. Again, this is an open forum. Any Bible question or comment is fair game. We're looking forward to your comments on the program tonight. Kimberly in Cookville, Tennessee, writes the following. She says, recently I learned that one of my cousins has taught his children this in regards to dating. And she quotes something he wrote in an email to her. We have always raised our children with the understanding that dating was not to be going to be a part of their social life. We wanted them to grow up with purity and innocence. Part of the plan was to not date or be alone with members of the opposite sex. We are, were trusting that when the time was right, God would provi- provide a mate just as he provided a sacrifice for Abraham. I can't tell you the ridicule we received from other people over this. She says, now Kimberly says, I find this approach interesting. Not only have his two oldest sons not dated, the sons also want their first kiss to occur at the time of their marriage ceremony. Of course, this, the curious part to this is one of their oldest two sons just met a girl three weeks ago who basically thinks as he does, and they are already engaged only after three weeks. They are getting married in November. My cousin's, old son, my cousin's son also doesn't want to be alone with his fiance so as not to tempt himself to do something wrong. He wants someone with them in the same room at all times when they are together. Would it be possible to have 
uh, a program on this. Uh, what to teach our kids regarding dating and finding a future mate? What can we teach them on the proper way to date? What are some rules to help ensure that they aren't tempted to do wrong? What are some guidelines we need to teach them to use when dating? All right. Interesting uh, observation there and question from Kimberly. What are some thoughts that we have on the panel tonight about that? Well, Jacob, I, you know, one, I, th- I think it is an interesting question, and I don't speak as an expert in these matters, uh, but I do know that in there are certain cultures, both historical and current cultures, wherein the kind of courtship that happens here uh, does not happen. In other words, uh, uh, you know, you don't go through a period of courtship where there's dating, where where the the boy and the girl are alone together, and so forth. That it is more, far more restricted. And and so you know, we've heard cultures where they have arranged marriages and so forth, where where the marriage relationship is not based upon a romantic love. Uh, you know, romance is not involved. But you know what's interesting is statistically in those cultures where they have arranged marriages, the marriages survive at a far higher percentage than they do in our culture. That that those arranged marriages are actually more successful than those that we uh, have on the basis of a romantic courtship sort of thing. So, you know, although it's not common in our culture, and as as this uh, one person said, they received a lot of ridicule from trying to follow that approach. Uh, well, just being ridiculed by people in this modern culture is not necessarily a bad thing. And, Doug, you have a daughter of dating age. What do those comments sound like to you? How, do, how does that instruction uh, uh, resonate with you? I think the most important thing as a parent, you need to influence your children toward the right uh, spouse. And um, they need to – we live in a society where they make their own decisions, but you need to be very outspoken toward them to let them know – of what God expects out of a spouse, and be very vocal on that, and um, and then you hope for the best, and that's that's the scary part about being a parent. But that's what we have to do as parents: teach them, bring them up, nurture and admonition the Lord, and then and then hope for the best when they make their decisions. And Rick, what do you think about those comments? It's interesting to me that this quote that we have here and the approach. This person is described uh, fits exactly what my parents did more than 50 years ago. I mean, this is to a T what my parents did. And one thing about this, uh, whatever you want to say about how strict or overly cautious this is, I'd prefer this any day over early dating, which has been the bane of many a family. Sure. Absolutely. You can't uh, you can't fault this uh, approach. I mean, it, this approach is obviously taking the safe road. And, uh, and and making sure that they stay away from temptation. Wait. It's not something that I did. <laughs> but it does say in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 1, Now concerning the things about which you, which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. All right. Well, you know, uh, Timothy, a young man and, and one who was involved in uh, the work of preaching the gospel, was warned <laughs> by Paul, 2 Timothy 2, Verse 22, flee also youthful lust, follow righteousness, faith, charity, peace with them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Even Timothy needed to be warned to flee from fornication. It's a great danger, and our young people need to especially be warned. There are so many dangers because the norms, the societal norms are so corrupted now. You know, if, if, you know, if, a, if a young man or a young woman maintain moral purity and, and abstain from sexual activity until they're married, 
they're considered oddballs. That's not the norm. All the kids are having sexual activity before marriage. And if you don't, then you're just, you're just some kind of a weirdo. That's the kind of peer pressures that our kids are being exposed to. So parents today need to be more careful than ever in guiding their children through this very dangerous minefield, spiritual minefield of courtship. So I, I, I certainly wouldn't ridicule parents who are trying to follow a very careful course there. Arthur, you've got a comment? Yes, I'd like to. It's just excuse. I don't think your microphone. Push it all the way up to the top there. There you go. Now you're on. Now, in the long ago when um, Abraham uh, wanted to Isaac to have a uh, wife, he sent his servant back to the homeland to get him a wife, and uh, he brought Rebecca back to Isaac. And uh, you know, Isaac didn't even know who Rebecca was, and never seen her. And he says that uh, in verse twenty. Four of Genesis in verse 67, he said, Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her, and Isaac was comforted after the mother's death. You know, you find so much emphasis on after the marriage, how that you're to love your wife. Ephesians 5 tells us so much emphasis there on loving your wife, and it doesn't say anything about dating, and we need to know them, we need to love them, and and all this type thing in before marriage, but the love is to definitely be after the marriage. So that would that would actually be a case of what we would refer to as an arranged marriage. Very clearly, he didn't know her, he didn't he didn't court her, but he took her as wife and loved her, and so that that distinguishes that difference. And to, and two also, Greg, you see where that uh, Isaac brought her in his mother's tent to let you know that it just wasn't some act of fornication, but this was approved. This was the methodology in which they constituted a marriage in, the, in that society. Okay, good point. All right. Thank you, Kimberly, for your email tonight. 877-381-4567. Give us a call on the phone or send us an email to questions at collegeview.com. Jacob, we got an email from Randy in Jackson, Missouri, uh, with several interesting questions. He says we don't have to answer them all, but he, he's asked several interesting questions. The first two of them... Uh, have to do sort of with the Christians' involvement in politics, uh, I think, and, and I'm going to lump them together. Question one, will God punish the United States for the scourge of abortion? How and when? And should Christian voters be one-issue voters? In other words, should there be a litmus test on abortion or the question, we got one candidate running for president who's a Mormon. Should that be? Should we be one-issue kind of people? What do you think about that? Rick, start us out. You get all the good ones tonight. Uh, sure. <laughs> okay, as far as the first one, you asked about the first one, right? Will, will God punish the U.S. for the scourge of abortion? Is that what you said? That is right. correct. Okay. I know that in Psalm 917, uh, um, the wicked should be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. I know in Proverbs 14:34, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Now, the facts are clear. What God will do is not an issue. What he did to Sodom and Gomorrah, what he did to Assyria, to Babylon, to Persia, to Greece, to Rome, and you just go all the way down the line. Uh, the Canaanites illustrate it well. When their cup of iniquity, Genesis 15, reached full, God says, I will destroy it. Now, I could not have told you upon hearing that prediction in Genesis 15 that it would take 400 years. I don't know God's timetable. The facts are clear. The time is not. I think that's right. In other words, we can't answer the question how or when, but we can be confident that God will judge nations that abide evil. 
And our nation, unfortunately, is, has been abiding this evil of abortion now uh, for 30-plus years. And, and you cannot imagine that God just ignores that and looks the other way. So how is he going to judge us and when will it happen? Those are questions we can't answer we don't, because we don't, we don't have the advantage of a modern-day prophet who's speaking the word of God today. We have the re- recorded word of God, and we can look, as Rick said, historically to the way God dealt with nations for their evil, and he always punished them for their evil. Therefore, we would conclude from that that God will surely do the same to America. How and when, we can't answer. We don't have any prophet prophesying to us today. Now, what about this? Take that statement. You know, surely God is angry over the issue of abortion. You, you know, God, God in his righteous justice cannot uh, be ignoring the horrible evil of abortion. Now, as, as, as Christians, we read earlier in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, we're to be lights in this world and we're to let our light shine. What should we do when it comes to uh, our involvement in this country? In other words, we're given the opportunity to vote, to elect leaders, to choose those who will make decisions at the national level. Should that be a factor in our in our deciding? Doug, what do you think? Well, actually, um, Rick and I have been discussing this, and it's a very – I don't have the answer, and um, but we're coming up on a very crucial election that's going to determine most likely how our country is going to be heading in the future. And I have a tremendous amount of fear for this country. Uh, on Wednesday nights, we study about the Old Testament. And every, t- every Wednesday night, every lesson, it brings more fear to me in what happens, what is going to happen to this country and where it's headed. And as a Christian, I'm trying to determine what I need to do, if anything. And the one thing I have decided is that the gospel needs to be preached, just like we're doing tonight. And that's the first step. And the other steps, I haven't reached a conclusion, but definitely teaching God's word is what we need to do as a nation, as Christians. And Rick, what do you think? We know that in Genesis 18, if there had been enough righteous people in Sodom, it would not have fallen. And I believe the same principle would hold true for America. I also know that in Daniel 5, the thing that destroyed Babylon, the famous handwriting on the wall chapter, was not because the Persian armies were superior to Babylon, but because Babylon was rotten from within. There was not enough moral worth in Babylon for God to allow them to live. And so he transferred the control of power from one world government to another and used one verse to describe that control. We see today a lot of things that disturb people. We have weapons of mass destruction, nuclear weapons. We have weapons of mass murder, chemical and biological weapons. We have weapons of mass disruption, what we call the electromagnetic pulse and things of this nature. And people are upset about those because China, South Korea, all the Islamic states and various others hate the United States and they want to destroy it. I believe our focus should not be on the number of our enemies or on the number of their nuclear warheads or on the number of their soldiers, but rather on our relationship with God. Exactly right. I think that's right. You know, statistics indicate that more babies have been aborted in America than all of the soldiers ever killed in warfare in the history of this country. I mean, it's the, the, something on the order of 40 million abortions in America since 1973. Uh, the number of soldiers killed in war doesn't even come close to that many. Uh, it, it is a, a shocking indiscretion. Now, I wanna, uh, the question, though, should we be one-issue voters? In other words, should that single issue determine whether or not we would vote for a political candidate for office. Now, we're not 
uh, it's not our purpose uh, in this program or uh, for the church to be a, 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 an arm of a political party. That's not our purpose. But to me, it only makes common sense that if I am to exercise my influence to be salt and light, as we referenced from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 and following, if we're to be salt and light, in other words, we're supposed to try to influence our society for good, to be a good influence, I just don't see the logic behind saying, well, I'm going to vote for this candidate, although he avows his support for abortion, I'm going to vote for him anyway. Uh, To me, it doesn't seem to be consistent with what the Lord wants us to do in influencing our society and our culture. Arthur? Uh, Yes, uh, with this one thing we can be sure of in the book of Daniel, the uh, fourth chapter, in the interpretation of uh, Nebuchadnezzar's dream in verse 25, he said that they shall drive thee from men, and thy dwelling shall be with the beast of the field, and they shall make thee to eat grass as oxes, and they shall wet thee with the dew of heaven, and seven times shall pass over thee, till thou know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdoms of men, and give it to whomsoever he will. It was true then, and it's true now. God rules in the affairs of men and nations. Very true. Exactly right. All right, guys, we uh, need to take another break. I, I said we needed to go faster, but we're not doing that yet. So we got 15 <laughs> more minutes to redeem ourselves. Give us your call or your email, 877-381-4567, questions at collegeview.com. Stay tuned. We're back right after this. These guys are doing all of the talking. We need to hear from you. Call in now. The virtual Bible study continues right after this. Hello, everyone. I'm Monty, a member of the College View Church of Christ. So you've been hearing all about the College View Church of Christ on the virtual Bible study and are interested in finding out more about the church. But you live hundreds of miles away from Columbia, Tennessee, and can't come and visit with the congregation to find out more. There's no reason to fear. After all, we live in the 21st century. Here's what you can do to find out more about the College View Church of Christ. First, why don't you check out our website while you're listening to the virtual Bible study. You'll find important information about the church there, including bulletin articles there on various subjects and can even listen to sermons that have been presented at the College View Church in the past. Secondly, if you have questions about the church or about any Bible teaching, why don't you send an email to us and let us know how we can help. Send your questions to questions at collegeview.com. That address, once again, is questions at collegeview.com. We can even have a personal Bible study with you over email if you desire. And finally, if you would rather talk with someone in person, give us a call at 931-381-4567. That's 931-381-4567. You can call this number anytime. If you don't get an answer, leave a message and we'll call you back as soon as we can. We're glad you're listening to the virtual Bible study and hope to hear from you soon. My name is Roger Toombs, and me and my wife love to listen to the virtual Bible study on Thursday nights. Broadcasting around the world with truths that are out of this world. The Virtual Bible Study. Take it away, guys. And welcome back to the program tonight. We're glad that you chose to join us, and we're looking forward to even talking with you yet tonight. 877-381-4567. Questions at collegeview.com. Jacob, I want to catch one more question real quickly from Randy's email. He asked the question, is it okay for Christians to have religious pictures or statues in their houses? What about that? Is it okay to have, you know, that's a very common thing. A lot of people have pictures of Jesus. Uh, Some have statues of various uh, religious characters. And uh, what about that? You know, that's that's not a new question. That question has been around for a long time. How would we answer it? Rick, you want to start us out? 
John ends his first epistle saying, little, little children, keep yourselves from idols. In a culture that was absolutely saturated with these statues, uh, it, it's hard for me to believe that there was not a clear line of distinction between what a Christian would do and what pagans were doing. And I've, I've read that, that originally when the pagans put up a statue, say, to Caesar, it wasn't for the purpose of worshiping that statue, but because... They wanted to see what he looked like. But the longer they looked, the more they admired, the more the deity claims of the Caesars came and went, the more the people began to worship. This was true of the ancient Israelites. We don't have any trouble understanding what idolatry is. In the Old Testament, in Exodus 32, they make an image, and they say, this is your, these are your gods that brought you out of Egypt. Uh, I don't see how the Christian would want to make any image of God, as in the teaching of Deuteronomy 4 because the children of Israel saw no similitude, no likeness of God, lest they might make something that would resemble what they saw. And when then the New Testament, John says, keep yourselves from idols, that pretty well defines, I think, what's involved. In, in Acts, I think you're exactly right, uh, Rick, and I agree with you. And I, I would also call to reference in Acts chapter 17, Paul was in the city of Athens and he was <clears> preaching <throat> to people completely given over to idolatry. That is, they had their graven images And he taught them in Acts 17, verse 29, For then as much as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is likened to gold or silver or stone graven by art and man's device. And so Paul said that's not the way you uh, honor God. That's not the way you reverence him. And so I I think that provides a strong basis for us to make a decision that we should not be doing that sort of thing. I think, Arthur, you had a verse? Yes, there's a couple of verses in Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53, uh, that uh, chapter 53 is every verse there is about Jesus Christ and uh, the last three verses of chapter 52. Also, in, we're talking about him in verse 14. He said, And as many were astonished at the, his visage was so marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. And this visage was his face. As many as were astonished at thee, his face was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. In Isaiah 53 and verse 2, he said, If you were to see him, there is no beauty in him that we should desire him. So the pictures that I can remember from my childhood up was a good-looking picture of Jesus Christ with the long hair and the beard and this type thing, and he was always a handsome man, and from these verses, uh, that does not describe the Christ that we read, out and read about in the Bible. And of course, that represents a big part of the problem. Nobody knows what Jesus looked like. Therefore, any picture to try to depict him is obviously inaccurate. And so it's a futile thing. Wade? I wanted to read from Exodus 32 because I, to me, this, this tears this whole issue apart. If you look in verse uh, 1... The, uh, the people tell Aaron, come make us a God who will go before us. But, in, but then Aaron tells them in verse 2, tear off your golden rings and the ears of your wives and your sons. Bring them to me. All right. Then they bring him the, the golden rings. And then in verse 4, he, and it says, and he took this from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said... This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. See, what I think, now you correct me if I'm wrong, but what I believe is I believe 
these people knew God because they had been seeing Him all this time. You know, He, he was going before them uh, in the Red Sea, all this. But they had to have a they had to have something to look at. They couldn't. When see you said they had seen God, they'd seen the evidence of right. God. They hadn't seen Him physically, or no, they, they hadn't seen a form of God, but they'd seen His work, His yeah, power. They knew His power. But they had to have something, an image, some kind of image in front of them. Because Moses was gone. He was up on the mountain. They had to have some kind of image in front of them to keep their faith. And this is what Moses got so mad about when he come back down. And then he gave the law. Exactly right. I think that's a good point. And, and to me, there's no difference in that than worshiping a, a cross that's around your neck or, or worshiping a picture. I think it's the same thing. You've got to have something to look at. Exactly right. All right. Uh, appreciate that. Uh, those good questions, Randy, and your participation on the program tonight. We have an email from Keith, and you guys listen up. Keith was in a discussion with someone today and had to answer these questions on the fly. You haven't seen this question, so this will be uh, you'll be in the same boat as Keith. Keith says, I was studying with a Baptist today, and we were talking about falling from grace. He made the statement that God will take a Christian home to heaven if they do not repent. He said this was the case with David. But then Keith notes, David repented before God was uh, to take him. He also said that this was the case with Moses. He quoted John chapter 5. I told him of Hebrews 10 verse 26, he believes that one can't fall from grace. What else can I tell him? And so Keith is studying with a Baptist who says that you can die, as even as a murderer, as some Baptists would say, or it, it, whatever you want to do, you can do it. And once you're saved, you can never be lost, that God will save you regardless of how you live your life. And of course, this is the doctrine of, of uh, we, we often commonly refer to it as once saved, always saved, but it's also referred to as the impossibility of apostasy or the security of the believer. But it is a part of Calvinism that those who are saved can never so sin as to be lost. They can't fall from grace. Uh, I, I would just start us out with one verse, Galatians chapter 5, verse 4. Paul, writing to the Galatians, said, Christ has become of no effect unto you. Whosoever is you are justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace. Now, he was talking about the problem of them trying to go back and bind or uh, enforce certain aspects of the law of Moses. That's That was the particular problem that he was dealing with in that context. But he said, if a Christian would try to do that, they would be fallen from grace. And I can remember just as long as I can remember preachers preaching that verse and, and making the very simple illustration. You can't fall out of a boat unless you're first in the boat. In order to fall out of a boat, you have to be in the boat first. Well, you can't fall out of grace unless you were once in grace. And so this verse, very clearly written to Christians, says it was possible for them to fall from grace. Therefore, they had to be in grace and there was the danger of them falling out of it. That's just very plain to me. Rick, Rick I think you got your finger on a passage there. I wasn't going to press this, but because of time, <laughs> Hebrews 3.12, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. I'd, I'd render any doctrine suspect when it contradicts such plain passages. Exactly. Doug, did you have your finger on a passage? No? I think we have one in the audience. And two, Rick, you got mine. I was fixing to say that very one. You know, it's more or less like what Greg says. How can you depart from God if you've never been with God? How can you depart from it? You know, and he's talking about brethren here. Take heed, lest you, you know, have an evil heart of unbelief and depart and leave in God. So that tells me that brethren can leave God, depart from God. All right. And some were. All How right. We, we appreciate uh, Keith for his email tonight. 
We've got a, uh, an email question from Craig. And in you're San... running out of time. Yeah, we've got to hurry. Go real quick here, guys. An email question from Craig in Sandusky, Michigan. Craig, glad you're participating with us in the virtual Bible study. He says, I'm having trouble in my mind reconciling Matthew 5.32 and Matthew 19.9. Matthew 5.32 says that if sexual immorality is not the reason for divorce, the innocent mate is placed in jeopardy of committing adultery. But if that is true, and I believe it is, then wouldn't it be true by construction of the language that if sexual immorality was the reason for the divorce, the innocent mate would not be in jeopardy of committing adultery? Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure I'm following that question. Now, let's look at that real quick. Matthew 5.32, uh, remember that it says... Who, uh, Jesus said that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causes her to commit adultery. And whosoever shall marry her that is divorced committeth adultery. Well, if a woman was already guilty, in other words, in other words a man's wife was already committing fornication, if, he, if she was guilty and he put her away, he would not be causing her to commit adultery. She was already guilty of it. So, no, But if she was innocent, in other words, she had not been unfaithful to him but he put her away he would put her in that jeopardy of committing the sin so that's the way i understand matthew 5 32 in other words if if the wife was a guilty fornicator already then he's not the one responsible for causing her to commit adultery if she was innocent then yes he would be guilty of putting her in that danger of committing adultery uh, by virtue of putting her away Uh, the verse says then at the end whosoever shall marry her that is divorced commits adultery if she, if she was already guilty of fornication and put away for that cause and someone married her, that would certainly be an unscriptural marriage relationship, adultery. If she was put away, though innocent, this passage clearly says that even an innocent put away person commits adultery when they remarry. And, and I think a very simple rule that we often recite is no put away person can remarry without sin. Innocent or guilty. I think Matthew 5.32 demonstrates that clearly. Then Craig goes on to say, Matthew 19.9 seems much clearer to me that the innocent mate commits sexual immorality upon remarriage regardless of whether they were put away for sexual immorality or for cause. And I think that's right. I think Matthew 19.9 confirms the same conclusion. Uh, I'm not sure I've gotten exactly what Craig's problem is in understanding that. I know Craig to be a good Bible student. To me, they, they, are, they are exactly uh, in agreement with one another. All right. We're out of time. We need to wrap it up. Uh, Rick, thank you for your participation tonight, thank you. and thank you for your good sermon. Thank you. And, Doug, thank you for joining us tonight. And also, the, the ones you heard in the audience speaking, members here at College View, Wade Shelton, Arthur Haynes, thanks for participating. Others are sitting here, but they weren't willing to say anything. So <laughs> we, we appreciate you all for staying around for the virtual Bible study. We have tonight. other questions we didn't get to tonight. We got a whole host of more questions. And we're and, and uh, to those who sent them in, be assured we will not dispose of them. We'll keep them on hand and we'll do this again. All right. We look forward to talking with you next week on the virtual Bible study. We encourage you to join us then and tell a friend about the virtual Bible study. In the meantime, we encourage you to put God first in your life, study his inspired word, the Bible, and live by it every day. You'll never regret it.
Thanks for listening to the virtual Bible study brought to you by the College View Church of Christ. The College View Church of Christ meets at 1618 Hampshire Pike in Columbia, Tennessee. If you are in the Columbia, Tennessee area, we encourage you to worship with the College View Church of Christ on Sunday mornings at 930 and on Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock. The College View Church of Christ also welcomes you to attend their Wednesday night Bible studies at 7 o'clock. If you have any questions about something that was said on tonight's broadcast or would like more information about the College View Church of Christ, please call 931-381-4567. That number again, 931-381-4567. Or for more information on the internet, visit collegeview.com. Be sure to tune into the virtual Bible study this time next Thursday for another informative study of God's Word.